Today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they had done, from this day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But there are people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Amen. First Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. 
Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And now chapter 13 from verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeath of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Amen. Our Father, we do pray now that you would help us to humble ourselves before your word and help me to be a leader who is humble before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question we are addressing today in 1 Samuel is, what do you look for in a leader? Much of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are asking that question, but it comes in particular focus here in chapter 8. What do you look for in a leader? Before we get to that lesson in 1 Samuel, let me just remind us what a relevant question that that is, the question of good leadership. Good leadership is vital to human flourishing. Let me say that again because it's important. Good leadership is vital to human flourishing. Now I realize not everyone believes that. 
especially in the individualistic West, where we find ourselves, the anti-authority West, where we find ourselves. Lots of people may think that, that the leader you have doesn't make a huge difference, shouldn't make a huge difference. I'm my own leader. But I think that view is being shown up as naive at the moment around the world. Turns out bad leadership does lead to wider problems in societies. Divisive leadership leads to divided societies. Leaders who normalize lying lead to societies where there's a crisis of truth and misinformation. Brutal leaders obviously lead to societies full of fear. And seeing all those problems, we might kind of run across to a no-leadership solution. You do sometimes, every so often, in kind of reaction to abuses of power, you do get these utopian pipe dreams. Wouldn't it be great just to have no leaders, no structure, no authority, no leadership at all? But the word that describes what ends up happening in a complete leadership vacuum is anarchy. The weak are not defended, the poor are not provided for, justice is not done, it's just the strong getting away with whatever kind of exploitation of others that they fancy. Turns out if you leave people to themselves, we don't just independently always do the right thing by others. It becomes every man or woman for themselves. Now there's evidence of that. If you look across the globe at, at failed states or states in, a, in civil war, it's chaos, brutal on the ground. Or if you look back at the book of Judges in the Bible, that was a time when there was no king in Israel. The conclusion of that book tells us everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was brutal. You see, human societies without good leadership get ugly quick. And all it takes for us to kind of feel our need for good leadership is a crisis. As soon as I face a crisis that's bigger than me, bigger than I can handle on my own, well then we, we realize we acutely need some good leadership. We're seeing that with the rampaging threat of COVID-19 today. We felt how much we need good leadership and appreciate it when it comes. And a thousand years ago, before, before, sorry, a thousand years before Jesus, I mean, the nation of Israel was, was feeling that need themselves. There was a crisis on. Uh, for them, not a rampaging virus, but, but other nations attacking them, um, Philistine raiding parties, and this threat of the Ammonites, who had a brutal king called Nahash. In the bit we skipped in chapter 11, Nahash's idea of a peace treaty was to gouge the right eye out of every man in Israel. I mean, that's him doing peace. The need for leadership was clear, both to protect from internal anarchy in society and external enemies, both to solve the book of Judges problem and the one Samuel problem of Philistines and Ammonites. And the question we've got this morning is, what makes a good leader? We need leadership, good leadership, but what makes a good leader? And particularly, what kind of leader do you want? Do I want? What do we actually value in a leader, in a king? What kind of leader? 
do we want? What do they need to be? Strong, relatable, funny, tall, wise, dynamic, trustworthy, a skilled speaker, good looking, good fun, good on TV. What makes a good leader? What do we look for? Last week, if you were here or caught up online, we've actually already seen the right answer to this question. The right leader for God's people, the absolute best king they could have, is God himself. He is our king. He is the majestic one. As Hannah prayed right at the start of the book, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. God of the Bible, Yahweh, is all-powerful, all-righteous, all-strong, all-just, all-loving, all-holy. No one rules like Yahweh. Totally righteous and fair in how he does justice, protecting the weak, holding the strong accountable. And we've we've not just heard that, we've seen evidence. So in chapter 4, he dealt with oppression within Israel. Remember, the sons of Eli were abusing people. Um, sexually and materially, at the temple. And God put a stop to it. Chapters 5 to 7, the external enemies who threatened God's people, God put a stop to as he single-handedly defeated the Philistines and their so-called God, Dagon. See, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a great king, a great leader, protects the people in battle, rules the people through his prophet Samuel. He's the one to turn to in a crisis. But Israel weren't satisfied with that arrangement. And so here in chapter 8, as as Samuel, the prophet priest, comes to the end of his life, verse 4, read it with me, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, at first sight, we might have some sympathy with what they're asking because Samuel's sons are wild. Look at verse 3. They're takers. They take gain. They take bribes. So appointing them as judges doesn't sound like a great plan. But, But here's the thing. You don't solve fears about the next generation being dodgy by moving to a system of hereditary monarchy. It just doesn't make any sense when you think about it. And actually, that's because their real motive is there in verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. If you've got the handout, you'll see on the back an, an, an outline of where we're going. And this is our first big point from 1 Samuel 8. Um, they are asking for the wrong kind of king, a king like the other nations. The people of Israel just wanted to operate on the same system as all the other nations around them. They just wanted to be kind of a, a big, strong king and a big army so they can take on the pagans around them. A king who will fight their battles for them rather than this kind of prophet-priest arrangement with Yahweh as the actual king. This begins to explain why Samuel's so against the plan, verse 6. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. They're clearly rejecting the current arrangement to become more like everyone around them. 
Secondly, though, notice verse 7. It's not just rejecting Samuel and his role, but fundamentally rejecting God and his rule as their king. Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they've said to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. See, they're not just asking for a leader like the nations. They're asking for a leader to replace God. It's the second problem with this request. This is important. This is the most important thing. They're looking for a human leader to replace God. We've just seen, chapters 4 to 7, that God himself is a great king, one you can rely on in a crisis. He enacts justice within the nation. He protects the nation from enemies. But when it comes to trusting God, our memories are so short. So despite God having utterly proved his credentials as able to look after them, nevertheless, God's people think they do better with a human king. If only we had a strong king to go up against scary enemies like Nahash the Ammonite. If only we were more like the nations around us, not kind of relying on an invisible God as our king, but but a visible, strong man on the throne, you know, with swords and army around him and spears. Then the Philistines would know they were in trouble. Then we could properly hold our own. They wanted to replace God with this king. And it's not the first time they've tried to replace him. This is a people with a history of idolatry, that is, trusting in anything and everything except God, the living Lord God, the holy I am God. And God points that out. Just look, verse 8. He gives them a history lesson. According to all the deeds that I've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they've forsaken me and served other gods, and so they're doing to you. But then verse 9, there's a real surprise. Samuel, give them what they want. Now then, obey their voice. Striking that. If you're in our Roman small group studies, you might recognize this. Sometimes God hands us over to what we want. Hands us over to the idolatry we're asking for to show us what a disaster flows from rejecting him. And that's what we're going to see unfold with Saul over the coming weeks. What happens when you get what you asked for? Replacing God. But God does want Samuel to warn them up front. So verse 9, he, he does say, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. He wants them to go in knowing that God has said this is a bad idea. And just at that moment, before we look at Samuel's warning in detail, I just need to, to pull off into a lay-by to address a really important question. If you've been a Christian for a while, it may be a question that's already kind of bubbling away in the background. Because, hang on, isn't having a human king part of God's plan? A good part of God's good plan? I wonder if anyone's been thinking that. We should be thinking that because the whole Bible story heads towards Jesus. 
who is a human king sitting on David's throne in Israel. So for where the story is going, human kings can't always be bad. You might be asking it because actually it's not just that the, the plan ends there. God has already promised that the plan's going to end there. So at the end of Genesis chapter 49, God makes a promise that the tribe of Judah will be where God's king, the king of God's people, will be found. All the way back then. It's amazing, really. Let me read a few verses from Genesis 49. Judah, your father's sons shall bow down before you. It's where we get the, 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 in our songs the Lion of Judah phrase. Judah, it says, is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's not just the plan ends up in Jesus. It's already been announced that there's going to be a king from Judah's line, a lion of Judah. That's long before this moment in Samuel. So then how can asking for a king be a bad thing? Even more than that, in God's law, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17, specifically addresses the question, what happens if you get into the land as God's people and you want a king like the nations? And the answer is, you can have one. With a couple of caveats, certain conditions. So how can it be a bad thing what they're doing? Do you see the question? Well, when we hit a puzzle in the Bible, it's important to to slow down and think carefully. It's not that God doesn't know what he's doing. That's why he tells us in Genesis as early as that. It's not that the Bible's lots of different voices and they don't really fit together, like liberal theology might say. No, God doesn't make mistakes. He knows that he's headed to Jesus. He knows the plan is David from the tribe of Judah. So why Saul first? Why do we get 1 Samuel 8 to 13, the wrong answer, before we turn to the right answer in David in 2 Samuel? Well, here's the thing. God has a lesson to teach us. And this is the lesson. It's not wrong to ask for a king, per se. The problem is the kind of king they're asking for and their motive for it. See, they're not asking for a king who will help them worship Yahweh and obey Yahweh as their king. They're not asking for a king who will reinforce God's kingship. They're asking for a king like the nations, a king who replaces God's rule, a king who will fight their battles instead of God's, a human leader to replace God. And that is just old-fashioned idolatry. If you do go back and read Deuteronomy 17, just the back half of the chapter, you'll see this. It's very, very clear there that they can have a king, but he has to be different from the nations. And in a particular way, he has to write a copy of God's law for himself and look at it every day. He has to obey God's rule. He has to be a ruler under God as the ultimate king. It puts it like this. He shall read God's law all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. 
That is the right kind of king. One who humbly leads God's people in obedience. One who points to God's rule ultimately over his people. And that is not what they're asking for. They're asking for a king to replace God's rule. A strong, powerful looking human that they can trust in to fight their battles. And if you've been wondering, what has this got to do with us today? Well, we need to realize this is naturally what we do. What we want to do. I don't know if you've ever found yourself wishing that the church in Scotland had more impressive leaders. Perhaps celebrity endorsements. Or famous preachers, like, you know, in the old days. Or top-tier sports people. Or hugely wealthy business leaders in our midst. Or, or kind of lots of leading politicians, and that's what we get excited about. Or just that the church leaders we had were a bit more, you know, impressive. Really someone. The kind of people who can make things happen, who can turn the tide of culture, who can win hearts and minds in the battle for the nation's soul. But that's not how God works. He works through weak jars of clay to show his gospel. And the warning from this passage is not to desire a human leader like that. Not to look to a human leader as a replacement of God's. As if the human leader could be the difference in whether we're secure as God's people. Whether we're going to win battles of hearts and minds. No. Yahweh's the true king. Any human leader cannot and should not replace him. And so even as God says to Samuel to grant their request, he also tells Samuel to warn them what kings like the nations are actually like. And this is verses 10 to 18 of chapter 8. God puts it like this. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Here's a preview of what a king like the nation is. Here's a sign of how costly it is to replace Yahweh, their generous God, with a flawed human ruler at the center. And in a nutshell, the warning is this. This will be a leader whose strength comes from take, take, take. Just look with me at the repeated language. Verse 11, Samuel said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards. 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyard. 16, he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men. 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. A strong king like the nations will take, take, take. That's where his strength comes from. See, unlike God, Yahweh, the I am God, the the self-sufficient God, the the infinitely capable and amazingly generous God, our creator, who doesn't need us to give things to him, he gives stuff to us. Well, unlike him, a human leader can only derive their strength from their people. Taxation, conscription, take, take, take. That's the way it works in the nations around them. And again, this is exactly what Deuteronomy 17 warned against. There God says, when they ask for a king, 
He must not behave like the nations. He must obey God and not acquire lots of stuff for himself, not loads of horses, not loads of wives, not loads of money. He must not be a take, take, take kind of king. What you need is an obey, obey, obey kind of king. A king not to replace Yahweh, but to follow his rule. But they're not looking for the right kind of king. And so bizarrely, I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, bizarrely, when Samuel warns them, it's going to be awful. It's going to be so costly for you. You're going to end up as slaves. You're going to lose your wealth to taxation and your families to conscription, yourselves into slavery. And they say, yes, that's the kind of king we want. That kind of king would be really strong against the Philistines. It runs so deep, this desire to replace our invisible king, Yahweh, with someone visible, someone who looks strong, someone who can fight our battles without us having to trust God to do it. And sadly, today, this is still the kind of leader that some Christians end up suffering under. It's really obvious with the self-serving charlatans of the prosperity gospel People who fleece the flock to line their own kind of lavish lifestyle, the, the expensive suits, the cars, the jets. Take, take, take. It's really obvious. But sadly, the longer I go on in ministry, the more I hear of examples of leadership closer to home. Even in Bible churches, where the, where the leadership feeds the leader, not the flock. Always got to be wary that those of us who are in leadership do not take but give. The church does not exist for our benefits. Because both back then and today, that kind of leadership turns out to be a tragedy for God's people, as we'll see with Saul. Before we go on into chapters 12 and 13, and we'll just do them briefly, but we'll see a bit of how Saul begins. I just want to pause at this moment and point out what a contrast this picture is to Jesus, the Lord Jesus, our King. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel, like every book in the Old Testament, aren't just written as kind of history lessons. They're written to prepare our hearts for Jesus, God's chosen leader, the ultimate King and Saviour we really need. So even as we're taught about the wrong kind of King to ask for and the wrong reasons to ask for him... God is preparing the ground for us to appreciate King Jesus, the king we really need when he arrived in Israel 2,000 years ago. Just think about it. Jesus is the exact opposite of this kind of king. He's not self-serving like rulers in the nations. No one rules the way he does. In Mark 10, he calls his disciples together and says, you know how those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, the nations, lord it over them. They're great ones, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For, talking about himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't take, take, take. He gives. 
gives, gives. He doesn't enslave others for his benefit. He took the form of a servant that we might be set free. And of course, Jesus is not a king who replaces God. Now, I don't just say that because Jesus is God the Son himself come to earth. That's true, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I say that because Jesus was a king who always stuck with his father's word, always stuck with what the scripture said, however costly. It couldn't be more different. A different kind of leader, a servant who lays down his life to obey his father and save his people at cost to himself. And that means that for church leadership, the kind of leadership that should exist in Jesus' kingdom, it should be radically different. Those of us who are elders in this church family, we are not to use the congregation to, to serve us or feed our egos or make us wealthy or feel powerful or popular or whatever it is. No, we follow the king's way. Give, give, give. Serve, serve, serve. Not take, take, take. And we definitely don't replace God's rule with our rule. That means in practice we have no right to say what God doesn't say. Or change what God does say. Or just replace his words. Push the Bible to one side and just end up saying what I think. Whether I do that in how I teach or how I live. For those of us at the moment looking in for kind of where am I going to go to church? Which spiritual leaders should I follow? I know that there are still people doing that having moved to Edinburgh to study or to work in, in the summer. Or look for leaders who look like Jesus. And leaders who don't replace God's rule by changing his words or drawing attention to themselves, but who operate as under-shepherds, pointing people to him. And the reason I'm spelling that out, the reason I'm taking time on that, is we do actually need to be told this. That's why this episode is here in the Bible. It's not what we naturally want. Those are not the qualities we naturally get excited by. Definitely not what, Samuel, what Israel were asking Samuel for here. Um, now, we don't have time to go through chapters 9 to 11. Um, uh, you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to try. Um, there are twists and turns there. It's the kind of appointment of Saul to, to the throne. Uh, it's like one of those movies, you know, when there might be a beautiful picture, kind of things are looking good, but the soundtrack doesn't let you relax. It's got kind of notes in it which clearly are bringing the tension up and up and up. That's what chapters 9 to 11 are if you read them. There's lots of kind of seemingly positive things about Saul with foreboding notes in the background. If you've got a Bible, you can, you can look at these as I go through, but don't worry if not. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul is from a wealthy family. Verse 2, he's good-looking. He's Israel's most eligible bachelor. He's taller than anyone else by some way. So incidentally, if you've ever thought church leaders should be picked on how tall they are, well, there's your proof text, 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. Which is a joke, but actually it's scary how easily we can be swayed by whether a leader has a commanding presence or good rhetoric, good appearance or height or dynamism, is a real leader among men, is moving or easy to listen to, is funny. I feel that, the temptation to recruit people into our training programs here. We train people for ministry and it's so easy to slip into worldly values 
in the judgments we make about who would be suited to, Christ, to, to Christian leadership. Easy to pick people who, who would be great in business or politics, but more on that later. The warning notes are saying, none of that counts for anything if they're not a leader who listens to God. You see, despite Saul's initial success, he does defeat Nahash of the Ammonites. Nevertheless, those warning notes just keep sounding. Something's not right here. There are clues, like he's, not, he's from the wrong tribe. So remember, the promise is the scepter won't depart from Judah, the Lion of Judah, but Saul's from Benjamin. Secondly, his name. His name means asked for. He's literally the you asked for it king. That doesn't bode well. And most worryingly of all, there are signs that he struggles to trust God. So after Samuel has given him promises and anointed him privately as God's king, there's then a big public revealing ceremony and Saul hides in the bags. And that struggle to trust God is the most serious of all the warning notes. Remember back in Deuteronomy 17, the king had to obey God's word. Had to sit under God as king. And in chapter 12, Samuel reminds them of that. Just turn with me, it's in the center of the, the service sheet if you've got a paper copy. Chapter 12, verse 12. Samuel reminds them that they did the wrong thing in asking for a king. Um, uh, you asked, the, a king shall reign over us, he says, 12 verse 12, when the Lord God was your king. And now, verse 13, behold the king who you have chosen, for whom you have asked, the Lord set a king over you. That's a reminder of chapter 8. But then, Samuel says, there's still a chance if you obey and your king obeys. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Will the king obey that is the key issue. It shouldn't surprise us that that's the key issue. It was the original key issue back with Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember? They would have rule over all creation under God's rule. They had to obey what God said. And the fact they didn't is where it all went wrong. And again and again through the Old Testament, this reminder is given. Moses signs off saying, you must obey. Joshua says, signs off saying, you must obey. And now Samuel is saying, your king must obey. He must take the lead in obedience. Because a strong king won't protect you if God is against you. All of which makes chapter 13 a deeply sobering and sad chapter. We're going to see more about chapter 13 next week. It, it's a pair with chapter 15, which Robin will pick up next Sunday. But in both those stories, Saul disobeys God and things start to unravel. What's striking, though, in chapter 13 is his failure kind of seems understandable, at least to us. You see, he's under real pressure in chapter 13. 
He's facing a huge Philistine army. You can see that in verse 5. And Samuel has told him he has to wait seven days. And then Samuel will come, do a sacrifice, and tell Saul what to do. And so, Samuel wait, uh, so Saul waits day one, day two, day three. People are getting really worried by this point. They can see how big the Philistine army is, day four. Day five. It's been a full working week now, lots of folk leaving. Army is starting to shrink by the day. Day six. Pretty soon it's just going to be Saul on his own, and how could he win that battle? Day seven, dawn, no sign of Samuel. Lunchtime, no Samuel. Maybe even the afternoon. We, we don't actually know what time of the day it happened, but afternoon, maybe, no Samuel. We're not told at what point in the day Saul panicked. But he definitely waited till day seven. But he panicked and decided to just take matters into his own hands. And then, sure enough, Samuel appears just after he's done the sacrifice. And Samuel asks him the same question God asked of Adam from Genesis 3. What have you done? The answer is that Saul, judged by what his eyes saw rather than what God said, he decided that God's way wasn't working or wasn't reasonable. Given the crisis, the pressure, the shrinking numbers, even if it meant disobeying what God said, well, he took matters into his own hands. That's the kind of king they asked for. A king who replaces God. Who doesn't keep God's commandments, not when it's inconvenient or doesn't seem like a good idea. Someone who calls the shots themselves. And the way the account reads, I think we have some sympathy for him, but Samuel has none because, verse 13, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom won't continue. The kind of king God wants is an obey, obey, obey kind of king. Now, we'll have to wait till next week to see the, the tragic consequences of Saul's failure. But even seeing that much should help us to appreciate the Lord Jesus, to value the king we've now been given as his people. I wonder how much you appreciate the obedience of Jesus. He always did what was right. He always obeyed his father and the word of scripture as God's human king on earth, even when it seemed like he was heading into the jaws of defeat. Just think about it. I mean, yes, no doubt it was hard for Saul as the seventh day grew later and later as his loyal soldiers and friends began to slink away into the dark. It was hard to stick with God's word, hard to stick with that plan when the pressure was on. Let me tell you, it was a whole lot harder for Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as the night closed in and he was abandoned by his closest followers as one by one they fell asleep or slipped away in fear. As he fell to the ground in agonized prayer, contemplating the cross and the battle that lay ahead and he said, not my will but yours be done. He was staring into the jaws of seeming defeat, 
But never once did he replace his father's will with his own agenda, a better human plan, avoid the cost. He never took glory for himself, but he took the form of a servant. He became obedient even to the point of death. He's a leader like no one else. He knew full well what the cross would involve. He was able to stop it in an instant, but he headed there anyway. That's our king. That's the kind of king God values, the kind of king who points to God's rule, not replaces it with his own idea. And so as we close, God asks us this morning, what do we value in a leader? I hope it's not the height, the strength, the good looks, the impressive resume, the dynamism, the ability to make things happen, the wealth, the power, the following, the brain, the brilliance. One thing really matters. Does he listen to God and obey what God says? It should be the first thing we treasure about King Jesus. It should be the first question we ask when we're considering anyone for leadership within the church, Jesus' kingdom. Not that we're perfect. No one is perfect. No one's righteous, not even one. We all need the cross of Jesus to forgive us. But we should ask whether for an under-shepherd like an elder or for a practical servant like a deacon or any other leadership role, we should ask the question the New Testament does ask, is their life lived under God's rule? Are they godly? Are they Christ-like? Are they listening to what God says and obeying it? Not perfectly, obviously not perfectly, this side of glory. But do they point to God's kingship or point away from it? That doesn't come naturally, asking that question. We're tempted to look for all the things the world would look for in leaders, but it's absolutely the right question to ask. And I hope as we see what an important question it is, and we'll go on and see even more with Saul what an important question it is, I hope it leads us to appreciate Jesus. Jesus whose spotless righteousness covers our failures, pays for them at the cross, and clothes us. He is just a marvellous king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We praise you that though he is in nature God, he took the form of a servant humbled himself to death, that we might live and be forgiven. We thank you for our King, in Jesus' name. Amen.